Well, amen. We want to say thanks again to all the dads. I know my dad uh, taught me how to, to live life to the full, how to love my, my wife and my family well, and we just thank you and all the dads and men that shaped you in your life. One of the things that uh, our Heavenly Father does is part of his role as dad is to teach us really what we learn in numbers, you know, how to avoid temptation, how to find the best kind of life, how to avoid the paths that lead to destruction. Sometimes we listen to dad and things went well. Sometimes we didn't listen to dad and, you know, had to face some consequences. But he put his arms around us and said, all right, all right, come on back here. Let's, let's relearn the lesson here so it doesn't happen again. We're going to discover God like that today as we're in the wilderness of temptation because temptation, temptation always takes you down paths you didn't want to go down farther than you wanted to go. In fact, I saw this quote about 20 years ago, and I've thought about it a lot. I've gone back to it over and over again. But it's these words. Temptation will take you farther than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And the whole time you're going down the path of temptation, you said, ah, oh, it won't hurt anybody. Oh, I won't stay very long. I'll be back soon. It'll only take a minute, a month. I can stop at any time. And I didn't mean to go that far in that relationship, in that habit, etc. In fact, last week we began uh, really expositing the, the story of Balaam. And Balaam is this, with this prophet, kind of this witch doctor, who God <laughs> catches his attention with a talking donkey and saves his life from this angel of the Lord. And really, as we look at that story from a zoom out, it's really the three stages of temptation. I don't know if you remember what Balak did. So Balak's the king trying to talk Balaam, the witch doctor, into cursing God's people of Israel. And it's kind of the three stages of temptation. First thing he says is, you know, jump over the line. Go curse everybody. Curse them all. I'll pay you lots of money. I'll give you lots of honor if you do it. And he won't do it. He says, well, if you won't go all the way, then just step over the line. Uh, he brings them to the small little section of Israelites and say, hey, just curse this section. He still won't do it. So finally he says, well, listen, if you're not going to go all the way and curse them all, if you're not going to just step over the line and curse a small group, at least just be neutral, right? Don't curse them and don't bless them, just be neutral. But see, God has commanded Balaam to bless his people. And so he doesn't want them just to not curse them, he wants them to bless them. And this is really how temptation works. It tries to get you all the way. If you won't do that, just step over the line. If you won't do that, well, at least just don't do the right thing if you're going to avoid doing the wrong thing. And here we come to the end of chapter 23 and 24 with a very unique temptation that Balaam faces that I think is very unique to our culture today. Let me show you what happens in the, in the passage. Because Balaam is going to be tempted, it looks like by money, and it looks like by comfort, but it's ultimately by honor, his reputation, how he's perceived by other people is really the true God in his life. Here's what it says. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam. I called you to curse my enemies. Look, you've bountifully blessed them these three times. The Lord has kept you back from honor. A quick reminder, Balak has promised to honor him and to honor him greatly, to give him whatever honor he wants. So this is a very unique temptation to Balaam. So let me define honor for a bit. Honor is how you're perceived by other people. We might call it a reputation. We might call it our public self. We might call it our uh, image. 
that other people see us as. And he's saying, because you followed God, he's kept you from getting the kind of image and fame and honor that I would have given you. Now, the opposite of reputation and image, sometimes we use the phrase to save face. And you're going to find that saving face is kind of a way we say it today. I want to save face because I don't want people to find out that the public version of me is out of sync with the private version of me. I will do anything to protect my reputation, to garner my reputation, to, to upgrade my reputation. So it looks like Balaam is going to obey. Look what it says next. So Balaam saw that by blessing God's people, it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So he didn't go as other times to do his sorcery. Instead, he set his face toward the wilderness or toward God. And he says, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. And this sounds like a godly man doing godly things. He faced temptation, but he realized that going God's way works. And it's partially true for the moment. But he worships saving face. He worships his reputation. And he's discovered that God can give him honor. And as long as God gives him reputation and honor, he'll follow God. But there's going to come a moment where God and reputation are going to be in, in conflict He's going to have to choose between the two. And the bottom line is you can only serve one master. At some point you're going to choose saving face or setting your face on God. And that's really what we're going to discover here at Balaam. We're going to discover that uh, setting your face on God means replacing saving face or your reputation as God. So we're going to look at two ways that we set our face on God today. And I hope as we do that, we're going to find this is not a unique Balaam temptation. This is a temptation that we all face. Let me jump into the first setting. How do we set our face on God? Well, it begins this way. Now, Balak says to Balaam, please come. I will take you to another place. So he just refused to curse all the people. And says, well, please come over here to another place. Perhaps it will please God. This is exactly how temptation sounds. Now, I know you did well over here, but maybe if you just do a little bit over here, or maybe if you choose it over here in a different place, maybe God will actually like it. Maybe it won't be that big a deal. In fact, maybe God will want you to be happy by giving into this. Or in the face of temptation or, or your own reputation, you say, hey, I know I should admit I did wrong. I know I should admit and apologize to my spouse or, or admit that I blew up this decision. But if I did that, mm, I would lose face. So I think instead I'll hide the fact that I did something wrong. And maybe God will honor the fact that I'm hiding it because it keeps my good reputation out there. I mean, that's what temptation sounds like. It just sounds so logical. Perhaps it would even please God for you to curse a small group of people. You may curse them just from here, just from here, not all over there, just from here, just a little bit. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor and overlooked the wasteland. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and, pre and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and ram on every altar. And here again we see this idea of worship. The question is going to come up in this text, what do you worship? Do you worship your reputation, saving face? Or you really worship setting your face on God regardless of the consequences? These will come in conflict. 
And even now, he's like, the answer should have been no. God doesn't want me to do this. But instead, he's beginning to worship. He's beginning to build an altar to maybe dabbling into this thing if he can find a way to get the diviner's fee and the reputation that goes with it. And we begin to see what we all do with temptation is we're always tempted to spiritualize our temptation or spiritualize our disobedience. God says, don't go there. We start going there anyway. We start tiptoeing in there. And we say, you know what? I know God would want me to be happy. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are gossiping because it, 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 it helped their reputation or, or getting into an affair. But God is okay with it because, you know, he would want me happy. And you're like, mm-hmm. Spiritualizing our disobedience, right? And we all do it. As I'm looking down, we all do it in some way. We say, well, perhaps God will be okay with me going down this path. God's like, I love you to tell you that's not going to end well. And I think this idea of altars reminds us that we all worship something or someone, always. Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord, that he didn't do it. So he didn't go as other times to what he used to worship his sorcery. Because the Lord was pleased. He got a reputation. He got blessing. He got honor. He, got, uh, he saved face before God. So as long as God gives him this, this idea of saving face, he's okay with serving God. So he set his face toward the wilderness. He raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to the tribes. But what happens when serving God, admitting he isn't obeying God, comes in conflict with saving face? The first way we set our face on God is we've got to replace saving face as God. Now here's what's interesting. Green Brown has done a lot of work as a psychologist and PhD on vulnerability and shame. And shame is what happens when people find out that the public view of you and the private view of you are out of sync. Well, the very nature of repentance, the very nature of apologizing, the very nature of admitting you're wrong is always going to put those two in conflict. What I pretend to be and what I want to be versus what I actually am. And Breen Brown says that the reason we struggle with being vulnerable, the reason we struggle with being honest, the reason we struggle with telling people that our marriage has trouble or we aren't the best mom or dad that we want to be is because of shame. In fact, pride in a biblical sense could be defined as the inability to process shame. And because I can't process shame, which is people finding out I'm not everything I pretend to be, in pride I protect my reputation at all costs. And that becomes my God. Saving face becomes my God. Aren't you glad we don't deal with these kind of primitive issues that they did back then? There's another psychological study that says if you grew up with a family where your mom or dad had depression, you grew up in what is often a shame-based system. And because of that, people who grew up with moms and dads who were depressed, they often have trouble apologizing later in life as parents and in marriage. Because to admit that you did something wrong is shameful. And you aren't the dad you want to be, you aren't the husband you want to be, you aren't the spouse you want to be. And so often, because you can't process shame, you get arrogant and think you're always right and don't want to admit you're wrong. But it's actually a pride problem. But the pride problem is an ability to process shame problem. Which is why what God offers is an ability to say, I have forgiven you past, present, and future. And the Bible says it covers your shame. So you can find out that you're a scoundrel. And Jesus died for you, but you're still loved. You can find out that at your worst day, and even if other people found out your worst stuff, 
you are still ultimately loved by the God of the universe. And parents in particular, especially fundamentalist Christian parents, have a tendency to produce a shame-based culture because they say, we gotta, we got to be a good Christian family. we got to pretend to be a good Christian family. You know, as soon as you get out of the car, stop fighting. You know, we got to pretend that we don't fight in this family. And so the image of the family and the image of being a strong Christian is more important than honesty or vulnerability or authenticity because you become experts in hiding, in secrets, and in pretending because saving face is your God. And it doesn't lead to freedom. And for Balaam, it's not going to lead to freedom. And he's going to have to discover what I think we're going to discover, which is that you, saving face is okay. Wanting reputation is okay. Wanting approval is okay. But you've got to not only replace it as God, but you've also got to replace it under God. That if it's in conflict with God, it subordinates to God. I'd rather be repentant and free than unrepentant and living duplicitously and pretending I'm something I'm not. You'll see that kind of play out here in our second setting. So our second setting here, we set our face on God. First, we've got to replace uh, saving face as God. But he goes on, he says, what's he going to do face to face here with Balak? So Balaam raised his eyes, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now this is the God of the Bible speaking through the God, I mean a witch doctor who doesn't really follow him. Then he took up his oracle, Balaam, and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man who, whose eyes were opened. Now he's going to mention a lot about his ears being opened and his eyes being opened. His ears being opened and his eyes being opened. So remember, he didn't see the angel of the Lord, even though his donkey could. He didn't hear what God told him to say and speak it, but his donkey did. So all of that's built in here. So he now realizes he's starting to see God, and he's starting to hear God's words, not his own words. But I say starting because at the end of the day, he's going to ultimately choose his reputation over God and lead the Israelites astray. But he says, whose eyes were opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of the Lord, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Now, if you remember, as we've been going wilderness to wilderness, one of the themes of the wilderness of temptation is will I see and hear what God says about this temptation, not see and hear what temptation says about this temptation? So it's kind of the idea going on here, which is he's beginning to see the truth of the situation from God's perspective, not from his own perspective. All right, let's play on so when you come face to face with any temptation, whatever your unique temptation is, temptation is always going to say the path set before you, God calls one way the way of death and says it's bad over there, it's painful over there, you know, protecting your reputation sounds good, but you get very, very lonely and very, very duplicitous and very, very secretive. You have to medicate your pain. Don't go there. But there's a path of life, God says. It has confession and vulnerability and authenticity. And yeah, it can be hard for a moment, but there's a sweetness and a healing that comes from my grace. Temptation says, no way, that's not true at all. Temptation's perspective is the path of death is going to give you honor. Protect your reputation at all costs. Oh my goodness, the path of death, it's not the path of death. It's going to give you pleasure. The pleasure you're not getting on God's path, you'll get on this path. Temptation's perspective is freedom's over here. Do whatever you want. Relief from those feelings and relief from those pain. Oh my gosh, just a little bit of drink and a little bit of that, and a little bit of medication, and you'll finally stop feeling the pain you've been in. 
is life over here. And the path of life that God's promising, he's holding out on you. It's going to ruin your reputation. You're going to feel dishonored. Don't admit you were wrong. You don't have to admit you're wrong. You're the man of the household. You have to admit you're wrong. You're the adult here. You have to admit you're wrong. You've done enough stuff right. They just see the good stuff you've done. And it'll be painful to admit you're wrong. It'll be painful. It'll be bondaging to have to admit you do something wrong, then they use it against you. Oh, it's going to be a permanent problem, and it's just death over there. And that's what temptation does. It, it turns light into darkness and darkness into light. Reminds me, uh, my wife and I, during uh, COVID, we watched a lot, a lot of bad television. <laughs> and one of the shows we watched that I do not recommend at all but had a great scene in it. It was a, a Norwegian film. I'm from Norway, the Holvens, Holvens. A Norwegian film called Ashland, and it was a fantasy film. And in this film, there's three young men who've been wandering through the woods and the wilderness on this quest. And they're starved, and they're lonely, and they're tired. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the wilderness, there are suddenly these three beautiful 20, 30-year-old maidens dressed to the nines who come up and they are suddenly enthralled with these sweaty Norwegian men and they're just flirting with them and enthralled by them and pulling them aside. And they say, are you hungry? Oh my goodness, are we hungry? And they bring them into a cave. And unbelievable, this cave is filled with the most delicious delicacies and drinks and foods they've ever had. They're eating meat and bakery and food. It's just delicious. Meanwhile, the three women are flirting with them the whole time. And one of the young men starts to have what he thinks might be flashbacks. As he's eating the, the bread, he flashes back to like dirty worms and then kind of flashes back in. And as this beautiful young maiden comes over to kiss him, he has a flash to like a, a nightmare of a, of a wicked witch. And pretty soon he realizes he's, he's not having flashbacks. He's starting to break the spell. These are three like 600-year-old uh, witches, and they have put a spell on these three young men to make them think they're beautiful maidens, even though they're kind of disgusting witches. And the food they think they're eating, which is this delicious delicacy, but you say, how did they get all this food out in the middle of the wilderness in a cave? Where's the stove, right? Instead, it's like rotten worms, and there's just decaying meat, and it's just d disgusting birds that died. And like, they are chomping down on stuff they think is life that's really death. They're being seduced by what they think is beauty, but it's actually horror. And that's the idea here, how temptation works. It puts a spell over us. So finally, he kind of talks the, his brothers into, these aren't beautiful women. This isn't good food. This is, this is rotten meat. What are you talking about, man? And finally, they break the spell and realize what has happened, and, and, they, and they head off to the, to the path of freedom. And I think that's what God wants for us. He wants often to break the spell. We really believe God is not good and the path he has for us is, is for death because temptation has turned everything upside down. And in contrast to temptation's perspective, look at how God describes Israel. Balak wants to curse them. God wants to bless them. Look how it describes God's way, God's path. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, like gardens by the riverside. God said, I want you to know my way. It's like a garden. It's like a waterfall. It's a place you can be refreshed. Being authentic, admitting your own mistakes, admitting you struggle with certain questions or doubts, admitting you haven't got all figured out, finding out you have doubts about parts of the Bible, finding out you have doubts about God's goodness. 
being open about that and honest about that. Oh my goodness, that'll come against my reputation. That's how you come to the garden. You begin to partake. You begin to eat by the riverside. He uses another metaphor that it, it's like aloes. We had a couple aloe plants in our house growing up because we were always burning ourselves because we were always playing with fire because that's what you do when you're a kid. And, and uh, so we were always going to the aloe plant and using that to, to wipe it on our, on, our, on our bruises or on our, on our hurts or specifically on our burns. If you've ever been burned by trying to keep up with the reputation of saving face versus setting your face on God, you'll eventually burn yourself out and wear yourself out trying to just pretend all the time. And God offers his healing. Aloe, not just any aloe, aloe planted by the Lord. The healing that comes from knowing that you can be loved, that your shame can be covered, that you are not your reputation. You are far more than the reputation you make. You're the reputation God gives you in Christ. That's a reputation to set your eyes upon. And when you run out of resources, when you run out of power, when you run out of strength or patience, you can be like a cedar by the water. That you can have roots deep into his resources and you have access to his compassion and his patience and his kindness. God says, that's what I'm offering. It's not death. It's everything you need for strength, for healing, for power. So when you come face to face with setting your face on God versus setting your face as God, make me your God and you're going to find the healing for everything you're looking for, the freedom that you've been longing for. Be the cedar by the waterside. So how lovely are your tents, like gardens, like cedars, and like aloes. And that's our second way, is we need to take setting your face on God means putting saving face under God, which means when I come face to face with, am I going to be honest or I'm going to protect my reputation? I'm going to put protecting my reputation under God. I'd rather be honest and true and set my face on God. It's a good priority, but it's got to be subordinated to the worship I have of God. So how do we do that? Well, there's a couple ways we do that. And he kind of plays that out here. You've got to have a new king. As long as reputation is your king or honor is your king or people's approval is your king or, or, or your reputation is your king, how you're perceived by people is your king, you're always going to worship that. You need to find a new king, a better king, a gracious king that your honor and your reputation can serve. And he talks about that king. He's talking back to Israel. He's talking about the Messiah. His king, the, the Lord's king, is higher than Agag, the most powerful king you've heard of. His kingdom will be exalted. God even brings him out of Egypt. And this, again, is why Mary and Joseph, they have Jesus uh, they come and then the angel warns them, right, that Herod's going to kill him. So they escape to Egypt. Remember this? And then after a few years later, he brings them out of Egypt. Like, why did God send a, a, them to Egypt and back? To fulfill this prophecy. We can know Jesus is not just a way to God. He's the way to God. He's the king. Because he fulfills these prophecies written about 1500 B.C. that we're reading. He brought him out of Egypt. And here's what Jesus offers you if you make him your king. If you put saving face under this king, under this God, he has strength like a wild ox when you run out of strength. He can consume your enemies and nations. He will break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down like a lion. As a lion, who's going to arouse him? You can feel safe next to this lion because you've got a lion by your side. 
Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. And now Balaam is beginning to say God's word to Israel. Here's what's interesting. Israel has no idea any of this is going on. They're down in the valley, doing their regular thing. They have no idea someone's trying to kill them. No idea somebody's trying to curse them. Their dad, outside of their purview, is working behind the scenes through a crazy prophet and a crazy donkey to protect his children. They have no idea that God has been working in the background to bless them and to protect them from curses, to heal them and to water them. And often when you, we feel very alone, we feel like, oh my goodness, we're about to face giants and fortified cities that our parents couldn't handle. You don't realize that God is working in the background in your life to bless you, to speak words of life over you, and to offer you healing. And that's what's happening here. So setting your face on God means getting a new king and seeing his kingdom in your life. Next, it means refusing to use God to get something else. Now we come to the saving face idea comes up again. So Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam. He struck his hands together. Balaam said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you bountifully blessed them three times. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you. Money, wealth, reputation, fame. Your name would mean something in Moab. But because you've chosen to follow God, because you've chosen to do the right thing, admit you were wrong, open your eyes to this new way, the Lord has kept you back from honor, kept you from what really matters. That's not true. In the ultimate sense, better to have the reputation with God than a reputation with man. But it doesn't feel that way in the moment. (laughs) It doesn't feel that way in the moment of temptation. You're going to serve something. You're going to worship something. The question is, do you worship honor more than you worship the Lord? At some point, you're going to have to choose between the two because they're going to come in conflict. And when they come in conflict, you have to decide which one is the higher priority. Are you using God to get honor? Are you using God to get safety? See, this is why even as Christians, when we get into a religious mindset, we get angry at God. And some of the people I know who are the most angry at God are not agnostics and are not atheists. They're, they're religious people. They're Christians. And the mindset is, God, because I did the right thing, I obeyed you, I went to church, I read the Bible, I check, 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 check. God, you owe me obedient children. You owe me a comfortable life. You owe me good health. And as long as God gives me honor, gives me health, gives me obedient children, I'm all in. But if God doesn't give me safety, give me honor, give me what I deserve because of all the religious things I've done, I'm angry at him. Because you weren't really loving God, you were using God to get what you really wanted, a reputation, obedient children, healing or comfortable resources. We've all done it, I've done it. It's kind of like when your kids went off to college, right? You love your kids. You want to hear from your kids. You're hoping they're going to call and say, how's it going? And tell you some stories. They haven't, you haven't heard from them for a few days. You haven't heard from them for a few weeks. Finally, they call. It's been about a month. And they get on the phone and they say, hey, mom, dad, I need money, right? I need money, right? 
And you don't mind being used a bit. You don't mind that you're, you're a conduit to some resources. But what do you really want? You want them to want to know you the way you want to know them. You want them to share their life with you the way you want to share their life with you. And God's the same way. God doesn't even mind used a little bit to be your, your, your way to get out of hell or your way to get into heaven. But, but he wants more than that. He doesn't want you to use him to get comfortable circumstances or, or promise safety to your, to your life or your kids or your family. He wants to be the source of life to you. And he wants you to love him and be interested in him the way he's interested in you. And you're going to find out whether you love God or love God as a conduit to get something else when God doesn't give you the something else. You're going to get very angry at God. You're going to have a lot of doubts. You're going to have a lot of concerns. Because you're going to discover that you said you worship God, but you actually only worship God as long as he gave you what you wanted. That's exactly what Balaam's going to do. It looks like he's very obeying of God as long as he gets the honor he wants. When he finds out that he could get a little more honor from Balak, you'll see him flip and change places. So, what does that mean for you and I? Well, I love the phrase that Balaam uses. Before he falls off a cliff, he says a few things good. Here's the phrase he uses. I cannot go beyond the word of what I worship most. See, at some point, you're going to have God's way and pleasure. God's way, save my reputation. And the question is, which do you worship most? Is saving face your God? I promise you, you will give in to saving face and pretending. Unless you say, I cannot go beyond that which I worship most, which is God, and I trust my dad, and I trust his way, I know his goodness, and he wants the best for me. If you want to know what you really worship, come face to face with temptation, with whatever it is you honor highly, a good thing, put it face to face with God, and if you're given the choice between God and this other thing, you will always pursue and listen to that which you worship most. And there's moments that we worship pleasure more and honor more and reputation more than we worship God. That's the opportunity to repent and say, oh God, I have you serving my reputation, not vice versa. In fact, here's some good things. These are, these are, look how Balaam says it here. He says, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. And that is a great phrase I want you to think about. I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. You could give me silver, gold, popularity, reputation, fame, but I cannot go beyond what I worship most, which is the word of the Lord. <laughs> and as I told you, at, while he says that, another chapter later he'll say, hey, uh, I blessed the people, but I still want that diviner's fee and that honor you talked about. How about I give you a way that you can get the Israelites to curse themselves? And he begins to find a way to loophole his way through because he really doesn't worship God more than he worships honor. So remember, there's no shame here. There's no condemnation of Christ Jesus. We all worship something like it's on this list. So look at that list, and I want you to think about what is the thing that you are most temptable by, that when given this versus that, God versus this thing, you end up worshiping it more than God. 
I cannot go beyond that which I worship most. And God, you are first in my life. Unless gold and silver is, is, <laughs> is part of the equation. Then maybe you're second in my life. Or God, listen, I will obey you and follow you. I will not go beyond what you say. Unless it's going to be dishonorable and as I'm going to be embarrassed or I have to admit that I was wrong. I don't want to lose any honor in this thing. Is it reputation? Is it power? Saving face? Popularity? Oh, I can't espouse God's way on this subject because I would lose some face and lose some, some friends. Fame? Maybe it's security. You so worship security that unless God promises you perfect security, uh, you, you can't necessarily follow him because he's not giving you what, you what you owe, what you deserve. Maybe it's comfort or pleasure or status or appearance. As I look at that list, it's like, man, I got half of these <laughs> things that I often worship more than God and have to repent of. But what does it look like for us as a community to say we like good reputations? They're important. We like honor and saving face. It's important. It's just not more important than what's right and what's true and repenting and admitting and finding the sweetness of grace when I don't live up to my standards or God's. What does it mean to serve that king? In fact, we talked last week about one of the ways we serve that king is by spreading his kingdom. You know, he's a, he's a kingdom of generosity. So we say, how can I be generous to other people? So maybe you want to fill a blue bag up, and maybe you want to find that blue bag as a way of saying, hey, uh, silver and gold and honor, it's, it's a way I can use that to, to bless other people and to extend that and to help the poorest among us. It's often interesting if you work with the, the poorest of poor, which I've done in downtown Chicago. I lived in the, the Cabrini-Green area just near that, and I worked in Atlanta and other places. Sometimes we, we give and we're generous because it makes us feel good about ourselves and it makes us have a good reputation of being generous. But if you do enough good works and enough help with people who are impoverished, you eventually find out that sometimes they're unthankful and sometimes they're entitled and you don't feel that warm feeling inside. It's kind of frustrating. And you say, well, I didn't do this for the feeling, though sometimes the feelings are good. I did it because I'm serving a king who prioritizes other people's needs even when they're unthankful and even when they feel entitled. What does it look like? I'll tell you a story about my buddy Lee. Lee uh, was on a business project. They were in the final stages of this thing they'd worked on for months. They went over to Japan, and, and as they were talking to the clients there, they are going to finish the deal up that night. Kind of part of their tradition in this, this company and this, this customer they had was that they would always kind of sign the deal at night, finishing it all up at, at a local bar. Well, he's fine with that, so they're going to head over there, and then he finds out it's not just a bar. It's actually a strip club in Japan. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, He's talking to his boss. Hey, anyway, I can just not come. You could go finish that deal up, and I can't be part of that. He's like, no, you, the, your job's on the line, business on the line. This is kind of how they do business here. We've done it the last couple times. Uh, we got to do it that way. And I remember Lee, he had this great phrase that he used. It reminded me a lot of what Balaam said here. I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. He says, well, <laughs> he turned to his boss and says, well, I've got a policy. And my policy is that for the sake of myself and the sake of my marriage, I, I, I don't go into places like that. I just feel like it's just a policy I have. You have a policy. Yeah, I've got a policy. And so he, he talks to the clients. He's like, hey, uh, the guy who wants, da, 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 wants to finish a deal, he, he can't go there tonight because he's got a policy. A policy? A policy? Policy. And he said he didn't go that night. They did close the deal. It did affect him over the next couple of months or even years in his reputation and his company and his influence and his ability to move up. 
But he said, I was just so glad that I had decided before I got into that moment, before I was at the, at the, at the ferry boat that day to head over, that wasn't the time to decide what I worship most. <laughs> it was beforehand. Before I get to the moments of temptation. You see, the battle can be won before the battle has begun. You don't wait until you're in temptation to decide where your line is. You say, Heavenly Father, I don't always know what I'm going to face. I don't always know what the future holds. I have a, a voice of temptation that turns light and darkness and darkness light. But Dad, I trust your way. I trust your wisdom. And Dad, I trust that I blew it. And I trust your forgiveness and your grace. And I trust that your reputation of me is far better than the one I'm trying to conjure up and manage myself. Let us be people who are free. Free to love our reputations without worshiping our reputations. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would deliver many of us who've been living in a world of, uh, of shame and saving face and we don't even know it. God, that we would tiptoe into the waters of confession, tiptoe into the waters of repentance. God, that we would see you as the ultimate example of this, Father that you came to show us what a man is like, a man who loved, a man who could lead, a man who could admit, who challenged other men to, to admit. Even you, Father, were vulnerable to say, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this, but I'm willing to do it if it's the only way. And you did, and you died for us. Father, I thank you for the reputation we have as your sons and your daughters of the Most High God. May we feel that and experience that and Father, we apologize corporately and individually for ways we have used you to get what we really want. We're sorry. We love you for who you are, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week.